before we actually dig into our sermon today, I'm going to give you the prologue to this message that I needed to have for myself, because uh, there's a little bit of deja vu going on for me this week, where last Sunday, if you were here, you heard me preach on 1 Corinthians 15, and I flipped my worship planning spreadsheet to this week and saw we are in 1 Corinthians 1, which made me go, didn't we just finish that? So to understand what's happening here, you need to know that normally at Corinth, we do about four different sermon series each year. And in a normal year, we pick a gospel or a theme in the gospel at the beginning of the year in January. And we follow that until around Easter time when we switch to a New Testament letter. Typically in the fall, we grab a book from the Old Testament, and that usually takes us up through Advent, where it's a sort of a coin toss. If we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, Advent lends itself nicely to both. So back in January, we started a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, talking about God the Father. And then we took a six-week detour into some passages from Matthew, and then we picked up the Creed again in March with Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son. And then we sort of pumped the brakes for Service Sunday and our 150th anniversary. And then we grabbed 1 Corinthians, and we read some parts of that. Um, Back on Pentecost at the beginning of June, we started talking about the Holy Spirit, and we went with 1 Corinthians and the Holy Spirit all the way through last week when we talked about the life everlasting. Amen. So you can see there are some elements of the normal pattern. We paid extra attention to a gospel in the early part of the year. We paid extra attention to 1 Corinthians over the summer. But here we are again at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. So the creed was unusual enough, but you're probably wondering, like, now why are we repeating books? I was really tempted to tell you it's because we don't think you got it the first time around, but that's not the case. What actually happened was that in lining up selections from 1 Corinthians that made sense with talking about the Holy Spirit, we realized that we had to pass over a lot of really wonderful um, passages. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we on the pastoral and programming staff and worship planning staff got this great email from Pastor Bob that said, you know, we don't need to move on to the Old Testament until September. So there's a lot of great stuff in 1 Corinthians. It's hard to understand. It's misinterpreted. It's very, you know, difficult to work through. I think we need to go back and dig in. What do you guys think and we said sure that sounds great and then Bob said good I'm going on vacation so that's how we've come to be here where I get to preach you a difficult passage and Pastor Lori gets to read the first chapter of 1 Corinthians for the second time since May so since the sermon series is a little unusual I'm gonna throw out the whole playbook and say an unusual sermon is fine too I don't remember ever doing this in preaching before, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you the end of my message first. So if you are a note taker or if you're waiting for the one-line summary or the thing that could go out on the bulletin board, here it is. If it's not about the cross, it's about the wrong thing. So what is the it in that phrase? Well, we'll get there. It's a couple of things. It's your identity, your focus, your faith, and your goals. But now, just because you know the end, don't check out on me because the end is already given and it's easy and it's simple because there's actually a lot going on in this passage um, and we're going to look at all of it as we remain fixed on the simple point that if it's not the cross, it's the wrong thing. So now that we've figured out how we're here and I've given you the end of the message, let's go ahead and start at the beginning. Today we pick up with uh, the word for is the first word you heard Pastor Lori read, which is always a clear indication that what we're about to say is really closely connected with what came before it. Uh, Paul's covered a lot of ground in just 17 verses of 1 Corinthians 1. In verses 1 through 9, he identifies the people at Corinth as a community Christ has called. 
And in verses 10 through 17, he jumps into the first problem about the Corinthians that has been reported to him. The problem is that there are divisions in the church, and the believers are claiming to belong to or to follow different leaders. To put it in our Corinth terms, it would be like some of you saying, well, I follow Pastor Paul, or I belong to Pastor Bob, or I'm with Pastor Lori. The Apostle Paul's response to those kind of comments is like, thank God I didn't baptize any of you, so you can't say that you're following me. Because the people are quarreling and they seem to be forgetting that they all belong to Christ, Paul is taking them back to the very basics of his message. And he's telling them that if their identity is not based on the cross, it's based on the wrong thing. Now, it's easy to see how this would have happened to them. In the ancient world, there is a lot of social status to be gained by being a skilled orator. Remember that Paul is living about 1,400 years before a printing press comes on the scene. So the most common and the most effective way that people have to communicate is by speaking. The ability to speak eloquently and persuasively is really valued in the ancient world. And we see a lot of times throughout his various letters when Paul warns the churches not to be swayed by these persuasive speakers and by their smooth-sounding words. Instead, he tells them they need to take these persuasive messages and smooth-sounding words and line them up against the gospel they already know. And in this way, Paul is saying it's about the content of the message, not how the message is delivered. Today, for people like me and Pastor Paul, that's really good news. It means that the power of the cross doesn't depend on how well I preach to you. It depends on the power of the cross. So in this passage, Paul is going to identify specifically two groups of people in Corinth who are struggling to accept the message of the cross. The first group he talks about is the Jews, and Paul says that they demand signs. Now, if you look back through Jewish history, it makes some sense to me why the Jews are looking for signs and miracles. This is not new. They're not being unreasonable. At many significant times in Jewish history, God had done exactly that and had given them incredible signs. If you think about where they've been, God sent Moses the burning bush. He sent plagues on Egypt. He led the people out through the wilderness with a pillar of fire and smoke. He parted the Red Sea so they could walk on dry ground. He gave them supernatural manna while they were in the wilderness. He made a donkey talk. He split the Jordan River, he toppled the walls of Jericho with a trumpet, he made the sun and moon stand still, he sent rain at a prophet's request, he raised people from the dead, he delivered people unscathed from a furnace, he kept a guy safe in a lion's den, and preserved a rebellious prophet who probably should have been fish food. And those are just the ones that came immediately to mind while I was thinking about this. It makes a lot of sense to me that the Jews are looking for signs. That's what God does for them. The other group is the Greeks, which Paul uses interchangeably in this passage, the word Gentile and Greek. They're not exact synonyms, but for Paul in this passage, they are. But whatever word he's using, he's talking about non-Jews who are also, in this case, not followers of Christ. And Paul says that they look for wisdom. The Greeks are representative of the wise and educated people of the ancient world. These are the people who prize rhetorical skill and persuasive speech, and they love philosophical debates. And the Greeks were also steeped in what we call today in academic circles an honor-shame culture. Now, if you're not familiar with the concept, in an honor-shame culture, everybody is playing a zero-sum game. In order for me to have honor, I need to shame you and take some of your honor away from you. 
the philosophers and the debaters, they knew that in every discourse, in every interaction they had, their job is to score points against their opponent and raise their own overall honor and lessen their opponents. This method of interacting with others worked reliably in the Greco-Roman world. Wherever people would go, the rules and the ultimate goal were the same. So just like the Jews looking for signs, the Greeks looking for wisdom makes sense to me. The world they're living in essentially demands that they seek wisdom and clever speech. But Paul is going to point out that the cross defies expectations and turns normal upside down. The cross, now keep in mind, I did not say the resurrection, the cross is not a miraculous sign. It looks like defeat, and proclaiming an apparent defeat to be the center of our lives doesn't sound wise and it doesn't look miraculous. But to the Jews, Paul will say that if what you're looking for isn't the cross, you're looking for the wrong thing. And to the Greeks, he will say that if what you're listening for isn't the message of the cross, you're listening for the wrong thing. In contrast to the signs that the Jews look for or the wisdom that the Greeks admire, Paul says that he preaches Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. I'm going to do something that I don't often do, which is give you a little bit of a Greek lesson. Um, And there are two reasons that I try to avoid giving you Greek lessons. Um, One is because I never want you to feel like if you don't know Greek or Hebrew, the Bible doesn't matter or is inaccessible. That's not true at all. Um, And I also have a great deal of respect for biblical translators who uh, tend to know a lot more about biblical languages than I do. But in this particular verse, there's something really fascinating that I am really sad is not more obvious in most English translations. The message of, the, of Christ crucified is a stumbling block. In Greek, the word stumbling block is the word scandalon. Now, if you listen to me say the word scandalon, you'll probably hear our English word scandal, and that's exactly where we get it from. So another perfectly valid translation for verse 23 could easily be, but we preach Christ crucified, a scandal to Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. So before we talk about what makes this message so scandalous, we need to do a little separation of biblical text from modern culture. In our modern culture, in today's world, a scandal is not what a classic scandal is. In its most traditional sense, a scandal is something that is perceived to be morally wrong and also causes public outrage. Now, the scandals we hear about in 2019 Uh, have much more to do with specific issues. Um, We are in what is now called the Me Too era, and the word scandal usually carries connotations of sexual harassment or abuse with it. So, let me be abundantly clear and tell you, that is wrong. That is not a good thing. We do need to talk about and deal with and bring to light issues of sexual abuse and harassment, but not today. That is not at all what Paul is talking about. When Paul says scandal, He is talking about it without those overtones on it. The cross of Jesus is a scandal because crucifixion was the lowest and most humiliating way to be executed in the ancient world. Now, the the Romans were not fools. They knew there were other ways to kill people, and in fact, they had killed plenty of people in plenty of other ways, uh, some of them quite creative if you go back and read history books. But when the effect they were going for was humiliation, suffering, shame, they chose the cross. It was public, and it was gruesome, and it was torturous. Now, the simple fact that a person should be crucified is not in and of itself a scandal. It happened all the time. But 
Paul's claim that this crucified one was the Messiah sent by God to deliver his people, that's a scandal. It is morally outrageous to Jews that such humiliation and lowliness should be heaped on God's chosen one. And it's, it's legally incongruous to them as well. The, the scriptures of the Jewish people clearly state that anyone hung on a tree was cursed by God. And yet, this is exactly what God has done. It's, it's nothing like the signs they've seen God perform before. This particular moment is wrong, and it's offensive, and it's outrageous. It is, to its heart, a scandal. Because in the ancient world, just like today, there are a lot of things that are a lot easier to look at and talk about than the cross. The teachings of Jesus tend to be very positive. The healings and miracles of Jesus are encouraging. They all give us the warm, fuzzy feelings. The resurrection of Jesus is the greatest triumph the church has. And the hope of eternal life with Jesus, as we talked about last week, is reassuring and motivating. But none of these are the things that Paul says is the most important. Lest we camp out in the earthly life of Jesus and consider him a great moral teacher and forget what follows, or dwell in the resurrection of Jesus and think of him as some spiritual being and forget what precedes it, Paul is pointing us right to the most gruesome and shameful part of Jesus' history. He's forcing us to live our lives grounded in that uncomfortable place where weakness and foolishness and shame appear at their most vivid. Paul is going to say that if our faith is not grounded in the cross, it's grounded in the wrong thing. As we were preparing our messages for this week, Pastor Paul and I have been talking a lot about what that looks like today. And although Pastor Paul and I enjoy some lively debate and discussion from time to time, this is an area where we have remarkably similar views. As as a whole, our discomfort and our dis-ease with the cross is shocking. It's the only way to say it. By, by virtue of being a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of people about what they believe. It's kind of the first thing people expect that I will ask them about. And sometimes I hear amazing stories and beautiful testimonies of God's goodness and mercy and grace and provision. And I love those moments. But other times I hear some really unsettling things. One of the trends that I have seen is that we as the modern church are losing our ability to talk about the cross. And now, mind you, when I say we as the church, I'm not talking about people in the wider world. I'm talking about people in the church, people who call themselves believing Christians. And I think our inability to talk about the cross is all tied up in our inability to talk in a reasonable way about sin. So what I see most frequently is two mistakes. On the one side, we have people who love to talk about sin. They are the people who are very happy to tell you exactly what your sins are, and they're excited to tell you if you don't repent right now where you're going to burn. And usually it's pretty loud, and it's pretty obnoxious, and it's pretty much judgment and condemnation all the way. There are some of those people. The bigger group, I think, is the people who are on the other end of the spectrum, who are motivated by uh, just an utter fear of being lumped in with those first group of people. They are so overreacting to that fear that they tend to avoid the idea of sin altogether. So for fear of sounding judgmental or critical, they're more likely to focus on how good we all are and how we're perfect just the way we are. 
the, the mantra is something like you hear in most self-help books today, um, you're perfect just the way you are, just keep on being you. Both groups are in the church today, and both of these groups are in what I would consider serious danger of losing the cross. Uh, the, the visual way that I, um, that I see this is that if you're in the first group, you're yelling at people about their sin, I like to imagine that at that point, the cross is somewhere behind me. If I'm standing here and yelling at you, you're not coming closer to the cross. You're going to turn it and walk the other way. On the other hand, if the cross is somewhere over there and I'm on this side going, you're fine, you don't need anything, come on, you're great just the way you are, I'm also drawing you away from the cross. So whether I'm pushing you or drawing you, I'm keeping you from the cross that you so badly and desperately need. In this way, I would say that the cross is still a scandal today. It's not at all popular to say to anyone, you're not perfect. And you can't, by your own efforts or your own power, make yourself perfect. This message is profoundly countercultural. It's unpopular in the world. It's unpopular in the church. And yet, when I look at the Bible, that's the message of the cross. We're not perfect, and we can't fix that on our own. I've said a lot of times in a lot of different situations, and I will continue to say it in a lot of times in a lot of situations, that my job is simply to point people towards Jesus and remind them that they still need him. So will I tell you that you're a sinner? Absolutely I will, in a heartbeat. Will I list out for you what your top ten sins are? Probably not. It's the Holy Spirit's job to reveal your sin to you and work with you to correct it. I'm happy to walk along beside you, but I don't think the Holy Spirit needs my help in figuring out what your sins are. I'm quite sure there is no sin ever committed on the earth that I have greater insight into than God. Plus, the Holy Spirit knows a lot more about your heart and your struggles and your issues. Frankly, there are a lot of you. You have a lot of hearts, a lot of struggles, a lot of issues, and I just don't need all that information. God's got it under control. My job is just to point you to Jesus and remind you that you need him and then step out of the way and let God do the work. Now that approach to talking about sin and the cross takes a bit of humility. It, it means I have to acknowledge that I am not the judge and jury and it means that I am not the police or the prosecutor of sin and it means that if you repent of your sins, I don't get to claim a bit of glory. It also means that people on both ends of the spectrums are pretty likely to be ticked off with me, and I'm probably going to be pretty unpopular with just about everybody. But I think there's another way to look at it. Because if I'm doing what I've just suggested to you, I'm, I'm neither standing in front of the cross pushing you away from it, or standing opposite the cross drawing you away from it. If I'm doing what I've suggested, I'm standing beside you pointing you toward the cross. And if we are pointing people to anything other than the cross, we're pointing them toward the wrong thing. Now, that model is my ideal. That model is what I believe in when I have the luxury of a week of time to think about what's important and who I want to be and what I want to do. It does not mean that I do it well all the time. Please don't hear me say that I do. There are plenty of times when I am just a judgmental jerk and there are plenty of times when I choose to stay silent or offer worthless platitudes because they tend to be a lot easier and quicker and cleaner than hard truth and honesty. That's because, to my core, I am a tragically, tragically flawed woman. 
called and chosen and redeemed by God, absolutely, but still the epitome of a holy mess. So some of you already know, but this fall I'm beginning a Doctor of Ministry program at Duke. And the first semester is focused on leadership in the Old Testament and the meta-narrative of violence as it goes through the Old Testament. So over the past few weeks, I've been spending a lot more time looking at the Old Testament than I have recently. And as I've been going back through those stories, I've been enjoying finding once again one of the great themes of the Bible, that God uses unlikely means. And it's a joy for me to discover that because I'm one of those unlikely means. So Paul is rehearsing this very familiar theme with the believers at Corinth. There were probably a couple of exceptions, but the language makes it very clear that most of them weren't particularly wise or influential or powerful whenever God called them. There were probably some who were educated and wealthy and of noble birth, but they were the exception, not the rule in ancient Corinth. Paul is pointing out that in choosing the Corinthians, God is acting in continuity with how he's been acting since the beginning of time. God always chooses the foolish, the weak, and the lowly. So why does he do that? I think that's pretty simple. It's because when you choose the foolish and the weak and the lowly to do your work, there's no denying that it's God's wisdom and power and status that make the difference and not ours. So, lest you think I'm making this up, where do we see this in the Bible? Well, there are a couple of places. God consistently chooses to bless or favor younger siblings in societies when the firstborn had all the privileges. Um, a few examples of that, Abel's offering surpasses Cain's, Isaac is given a greater inheritance than Ishmael, Jacob becomes greater than his brother Esau, Joseph is elevated above all his brothers, and David is made king even though he's the youngest of eight boys. Not to mention that God consistently sends his people to wage war against bigger and stronger opponents, and he chooses leaders like Moses, who's a terrible speaker and a murderer, and David, who's an adulterer and also a murderer. He uses prostitutes and thieves to further his mission, and he gives elderly and barren women the gift of pregnancy, and maybe most unlikely of all, he chooses a young virgin to be the mother of Jesus. Over and over and over again, God chooses things that seem foolish and weak and lowly by human standards to accomplish his purposes. And through each of these things, he's showing again and again that he is undeniably in control and at work in the world. And this brings us to what I consider to be the hardest truth of today's passage. When Paul writes to the first century church at Corinth, he reminds them that relatively few of them were educated, had money or power, or had the ability to influence their society. When I stand here and look at 21st century Corinth Church in Hickory, I see something very, very different. Now, we have some diversity in this church, but for the most part, most of you are well-educated, and most of you do have money or power, and many of you have very wide spheres of influence. I include myself in that category. Absolutely, I could have more education or money or power or influence, but I'd be lying if I told you I don't have any of those things. I have a pretty healthy share of all of them. So what's Paul's message for those of us who don't fall neatly into that category of foolish and weak and lowly? I think in its simplest terms, it's this. If God has called you, it is in spite of whatever wisdom or resources or power or influence you might have, not because of it. 
God is in no way impressed by our merits, and having these things doesn't mean we're his favorite, and it doesn't mean he loves us so much more. When I read passages like this, I'm actually compelled to look really critically at what I believe to be true about God. And I'd invite you to do the same thing today. If in your understanding of God, God always looks like you, and always thinks like you, and always acts like you, and is always affirming every thought you have or every step you take, I'm not so sure that's God. In fact, it may be helpful for us to remember that more often than not, God tends to be on the side of people who don't look like most of us. God tends to stand with the weak and the foolish and the lowly and the powerless and the oppressed. And if that makes you a little uncomfortable and a little bit annoyed with me, I'm okay with that. This is not going to be one of those days when I resolve everything into a really good, feel-good takeaway for you or a checklist of three things to do. Because I don't think it's my place to tell you exactly what God wants you to do with that truth. I'm not going to tell you you're perfect the way you are. I'm going to tell you the same thing that I hope you would say to me, which is, you're a sinner, and you need Jesus, and you need the cross. Because it's only there at the foot of the cross where we can lay down our wisdom, our education, our power, our status, and it's there on a level playing field, stripped of all of those perceived merits in the really uncomfortable shadow of a scandalous, shameful death of Jesus that we find our identity, where we turn our focus, where we ground our faith, and where we find, I hope, all that we've been seeking. It is not easy, it's not popular, and it's not glamorous. But church, it is worth it. I can't do it for you but I will do it with you. Because after all, if I'm pointing you to anything except the cross, I'm pointing you to the wrong thing. Would you pray with me? God, you have given us such a challenging place to look, such an uncomfortable and uneasy um, existence where we need to reconcile the cross and its shame and its gory, gruesome, uh, loss, uh, the foolishness of it, the weakness of it. It's not at all the way that I or any one of us would have chosen to save the world, and yet it's the thing you chose to do. And Lord, would you give us the ability to lay down the things that we think matter, the things that we put value and stock in. Would you help us to um, look instead to your cross, to find our identity, our purpose, our meaning, our vision in what you did on the cross. Help us to not just look at Jesus as our earthly teacher or look at the resurrected Christ as our hope for the future. Give us the grace right now to dwell in the messiness of the cross. We pray that you would transform us there at the foot of the cross. We ask this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.